Welcome to the Operatic Pastcast, a presentation and preservation of operatic memories and impressions, produced by Donald Cullop. Episode 121. The 1959-1960 season of the Metropolitan Opera found Alfred Hubey as chief usher for Rudolf Bing's tenth season as general manager. Mr. Hubey's memories include a new production of Simon Bocanegra for Leonard Warren, followed by the most tragic event in the Metropolitan Opera's history. The debuts of Pavel Lizitsian as Amanazro, Anselmo Colzani in Simon Bocanegra with its constantly changing casts, such as Zinka Milanov's first Amelia. Part three of five. The last new production was very ill-fated, even from the beginning, even without the tragedy that happened. It was Warren's last complete performance. The original production was entrusted to Margaret Webster, who had done so well with Carlo and she was a wonderful stage director, but the designer had a strange design that was very hard for her to really direct it. For instance, in the first act, there was a whole part cut, the prologue, where when you go into Fiesco's house, half of it was showing, so you see Bocanegra going in and see the room and all that. It was very hard for Margaret to direct it. And it was never announced, but it was basically for Leonard Warren, and Tobaldi was contracted but I don't think they ever announced her because by that time she found that she had a conflict in schedule where she couldn't come for the early rehearsals. So typical of second casting, they put in Mary Curtis Verna, who seemed to be always there to be put into operas. Metropolis was conducting, which everything looked well on paper, but the rehearsals were shambles, first of all because Mary Curtis Verna was learning the role Although Warren was never a likable person, I understand from people with his colleagues, he was always sort of difficult, but always professional. But during the run of the rehearsal of Bocanegra, he would act so unlike himself, he actually, during one rehearsal, just stopped everything and started screaming at everybody. For me, this was something that was going on in him physically, I'm sure. And uh, the first performance of March the 1st, his Bocanegra that night was good, but it wasn't the mature Bocanegra. It wasn't quite what it was in 1950. I don't know. I think maybe DeLuca being around, and he was working with DeLuca coaching, but he forgot some of that. It still was vocally wonderful. It missed the pathos of the last act of the 1950 production. On March the 4th, which was three nights later, was Tabaldi's return. What had happened is after she realized that she couldn't do the rehearsal of Bocanegra, they put her in the Bocanegra later when she had a chance to come into New York, and her return to America, to the Met, was to be the Forza on March 4th. That was on a Friday night, and that was a terrible, terrible night. I remember I was 
I was up in, I went up to the dress circle. There was some altercation that Usher called me downstairs. I was only chief usher in those days. And I went up to the dress circle, and I was listening to him doing the Ura Fatale aria. stopped and I looked down and he was on the ground so I rushed down to my office and grabbed the doctor bag and the house doctor was on the aisle towards the backstage. We always put the house doctor on that side and Adrian Zagnotti was the doctor on duty and we met and rushed backstage. Strangely enough, Agatha Warren had invited his doctor who had given him a complete physical on the Monday before the Bocanegra and pronounced him fit as a fiddle. He was turning 49 in a month. For some reason, I don't know, they were in a box trying to get backstage with everybody around. Just to get the doctor there was like a, a hurdle, I mean, to get through. And they were the stagehands. And then what they had done is, after the curtain was pulled down, because that particular set was shallow, you pull up the set and then it became the Presicilla scene, which is a wide open field with tree stumps in that production. When he... He fell face forward, and they closed the curtain. And as I was rushing with Dr. Giannotti, he, who I knew very well, he said to me, you know, he said, the way he fell, Al, I think he's a goner. He said, I, I just think it's something exploded. So we got to the stage, and Richard Tucker, that was the scene between he and Richard. They were very close. He was hysterical. 
Lenny, Lenny, and trying to calm him down and pull him aside just to get to the body. And he was lying there, and the stage was open at that time because that's an open scene. As we got to that side of the stage, some of the chorus members who had the costume for the Presicilla scene, the peasants, there were about 20 of them on their knees praying. I have never forgotten that sight of those 15 or 20 choristers and his body. And lo and behold, there was the doctor and Agatha, and the doctor was standing there looking at him stunned, his own doctor. And Adrian said to me, out of protocol, with his doctor there, I, have to, I, I can't, I know, I know he's dead, but I can't pronounce him dead. Leonard's doctor was a much older man. Adrian at the time was probably 38 years old or 40. Leonard's doctor was probably in his late 50s, maybe 60, looking terribly shocked with Agatha sitting on one of those tree stumps out of circulation completely. So Bing, who was very superstitious and hate anything like that, was kind of lurking kind of as far away as possible and realized that nothing was going to be done. So he went out before the curtain to ask the audience indulgence that be a, a pause and uh, Mr. Warren was taken ill. He didn't want to say anything because he couldn't. They had Sereni, who was in the theater, in costume by that time. Tobali had sung the prologue with Tucker. She sung the convent scene and uh, she's not in that first scene at all. And that act, uh, she's not in it till the Pache Pache actually. And uh, she was in a dressing room when all this happened. When they came into those terrible dressing rooms, Tobaldi's mother would bring a suitcase, then she'd take all these religious statues and all the paraphernalia that mother thought should be there. And uh, later on, I went in to see it, but that's before they pronounced him dead. And Adrian knew what to do, and his doctor didn't know what was going on. And finally, the two of them got together, and they pronounced him dead. And Bing came out and gave a wonderful, wonderful speech First of all, he had everybody stand up. It was just so beautifully done that it was sad in a way, but, but it was very short. I can't remember exactly what he said, but please leave quietly out of respect to the great baritone. It was really wonderfully done because you can create hysteria. And everybody was filing out, and I went back. I left that for a while, and then I went backstage and, uh, because we had to call the coroner. And we called it from the house manager's office. At that time, if you die in a public place, which is a theater or a street or a movie house or any public place, you can't move the body. Once your crown's dead, you can't move the body unless the city coroner comes. And so I went back. I don't know if I did the call or the house manager. I can't remember. They couldn't promise anything. Either way, the coroner was going to come. I went back, and his doctor had already left. I took Agatha, who I never met before, to Nera's dressing room, which happened to be his dressing room, and sat her in there, and we waited. He died approximately 9.20, 9.15, He was pronounced dead about 9.35, 9.40. The coronet came at 11.30. So I stayed with Agatha, Someone took her home after the coroner came, and the funeral parlor they took him to was the one they lived at Manhattan House, which is 66th Street and between uh, 3rd Avenue and Lexington. 
but there was a funeral home, may not be there now. The church is still there. That's the church where the service was. The funeral home was right across the street from Manhattan House, and that arrangement was made while Agatha was still there. And uh, that was the end of that performance. The next day was the matinee was the Dutchman. A ship is conducting. And uh, Bing came out. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm sure all of you, far away and here, know the great loss that the Metropolitan Opera and indeed the world of music have suffered last night. I'm equally sure that all of you share our grief as indeed you share that loss. No more fitting tribute could be made to Leonard Warren than to play the music of the composer whom he loved and served so well. Our orchestra will now play the prelude to the last act of Traviata in his memory. Leonard was, of course, uh, born in New York in the Bronx from a ultra-conservative Jewish family, always had a hard time trying to make a career, very bitter about it because he was just about to give up. The only money he earned was Radio City, where he signed with Jan Pearson. And even when he first got to the Met, he never thought he'd make it. He just wanted to make it fast. He had one of the great, great Verdi baritone voices of all time, and he had a breakthrough. I remember the story which... My idol was Lawrence Tribbett in my first seasons, and then I heard it from Agatha. I, I didn't believe it till I heard it from Agatha that uh, Johnson used to give the artists roles in preparation so the artists would know what roles that he might sing or be prepared to know. And Leonard made his debut, the same role that Paul Plischke made his debut, as the monk in the beginning of Jaconda. It's a very small role. But by the time I came in 43, with Tibbet canceling, Leonard was already doing, I heard his first Rigoletto coming in at the last minute. He did a lot of that. But then I heard from people, you know, this opera gossip has been the same for centuries, that uh, Leonard was given roles to sing probably about 1940 or 41 at Tibbet's height. And one of the roles was Ford. Tibbet had made his incredible success in 1925 as Ford that took the opera world by storm. And at that time, Tibbet wasn't singing Ford anymore. He actually was Falstaff because the voice had changed a lot. And he went to Johnson or St. Ledger, and probably St. Ledger, protested that, and they took that off his roles to sing, and he was very bitter about it. I don't want to think of Tibbet being a lesser but artists do have strange foibles of jealousy. Warren was the one that 
as soon as Tibbet was canceling, had his successes replacing Tibbet. I think by the time I came, he'd already sung Germont the year before, but it was 43. But some of his first roles were replacing Tibbet. And he did a lot of, in that first year, Tibbet, and second year especially, Tibbet canceled a lot. before the tragic Forza, there was an Aida, and Pavel Lysician was in this country. He was a very respected baritone at the Bolshoi, and very well known, and he was part of a cultural exchange. The Cold War was ending, where it was arranged that he would come to this country, even though nobody knew him. I mean, nobody ever heard of him here, to do a series of recitals in different cities, and Bing heard about it from Hurok, I guess, and he wanted him to, when he was in New York, to sing one performance of Amanazro, which he knew in Italian, but strangely enough felt much more comfortable singing in Russian. And there wasn't a lot of publicity about it. There were some articles and all. People knew this was happening. The sad part of the whole thing, he only sang the one performance, and I remember hearing the performance. It was a beautiful sound, it was not a small sound, but it wasn't an impressive sound for an Amanazro for the size of the Metropolitan. And uh, beautiful legato, beautiful quality, but miniature. Stella was the Aida, and Simeonato was the Amneris. So, you know, in the duet, in the third act, it just didn't work at all. And that was the only performance he ever sang. But because of Leonard Warren's death the next day, being a baritone, that was all the newspaper would feel about. There was no notice given of his debut, because, uh, you know, everything was concentrated on Leonard, all the newspaper articles, everything. So that was a one-performance debut. I must say, though, I don't think he was happy, in retrospect, that when he went back to Russia, I don't think that not getting another contract uh, didn't bother him. I think he realized it himself. The death of Leonard Warren posed a lot of problems. Nobody ever knew why... Bing never thought of Gobi. Maybe Gobi didn't want to come. Uh, he would have been the right person to bring over. Frank Guerrero was with the company, of course, respected baritone. Oh, 
not of the same, not quality, I'd say. I love Frank as a singer, but I don't think he himself would have wanted to sing Bocanegra. But uh, he actually took over for the broadcast. Meanwhile, they brought over a young Italian baritone with not the biggest voice in the world, but wonderful artist, somebody I liked who actually didn't do very many big roles there, but everything he did was superb, Anselmo Colzani. was married to American woman who I got to know very well. Kozani had, even though he was young, he had the maturity in his interpretation. The house was a little big for him. Bocanegra was very introspective, and it needed an artist of his caliber. The fact that he was a young artist made no difference because he was mature. Uh, and he was a very good, not a fill-in, but he, he sang those performances beautifully. And by that time, Tobaldi had come into the cast. Strange, the way they jockeyed that cast around, uh, I remember Richard, I knew him slightly before this happened, and then I saw him about a month later, because he had the habit of going in to the back of the box office before each performance, strange habit, he would put the tickets that he bought for his friends in envelopes. I always wondered why he didn't have his secretary or somebody do that, and he said it calms his nerves. This was before he went backstage to change. It was like 7 o'clock at night, so I saw him back there, we started to talk. He became a good friend years later. And then he said to me the next time I saw him coming in before one of his performances, he said, you know, Al, I, this has been the biggest shock of my life. He said, when I'm 50, I'm going to retire. I'll, I'll never sing after 50. Leonard was uh, 48 or 49. And, of course, Tucker sang to the, the bitter end, the very bitter end. And then at the same time, the cast kept on changing. Tucker left the cast, and William Olvis, a very bright young tenor, uh, that they tried to make it more than he was, came in and sang. And then, I think it was one performance, all of a sudden she appeared, I think once or twice in that particular run. It was Zinka Milanoff. It was her last new role, and it was a very strange role for her. It really was. She was the great Verdi soprano, but, you know, that first aria is very strange of Amelia's first aria. I mean, if you're looking for piano and for all that stuff, it's not in the book, and ever much, except in the council chamber scene. And she was a bit uh, matronly for Amelia. <laughs> Matronly. Oh, 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 oh,
Thank you for listening to the Operatic Pastcast. Visit the website at operaticpastcast.com. This is your producer, Donald Cullop. Thank you.